So why are you joining the session? To hear you speak. About what? <laughs> Politics. Is that I, important in art? Really important. Why? Um, because it's what kind of, uh, I suppose, dictates our living conditions, our lives, whether you can go down a road or not go down a road, whether you can live with heating and running water, um, and whether you can go and see your doctor if you need to. Thank you. Missed you. <laughs> Have you ever practiced self-censorship? That's a difficult question. Yes, probably. What kind of self-censorship? Being careful how I write reports. So you're a writer? Oh, social policy. Why is artistic freedom important? Why? Because uh, everybody is trying to live uh, the best way they can. And uh, being an artist, there is no other way out but freedom. And do you have to deal with this every day in your work? Well, I'm trying. <laughs> I hope I manage someday. Hmm. And I'm asking you, <laughs> have you ever been censored yourself? No, I don't think so. Not from any authority or the government or a gallery or... Um, no, I don't think so, actually, no. You're a free person. Um, free spirit. <laughs> possibly. <laughs> Is there any kind of uh, art censorship in Ireland? Maybe just um, around ways to make a living. Sometimes it censors you from actually being an artist. And you think sometimes that funding could be tied up to certain kinds of expressions? I think sometimes that there are other parasites that parasite on top of funding that may be allocated to the artists, and I get worried about that. It's a pyramidal thing. What, what do you expect to get out of this today, sitting here for another 50 minutes? I'm just really interested in hearing about other perceptions on um, artistic freedom and when, it, when, when artistic freedom is genuinely denied and when there's uh, survival, you know, fights for survival as well. Uh, thank you. I'm Marie Corpe, the former executive director of Free Muse. Um, I was the director between year 2000 and stopped working 2013. Um, and basically, I was before that a journalist and worked for the Swedish Broadcasting Corporations and, and many other organizations. I have worked a lot in so-called developing countries as a journalist. And I joined uh, Free Muse with Marie when, when we started in the 98, when she organized the first conference. And then in 2013, I took over uh, after her. And uh, so here we are, two basically semi-retired persons being quite active doing what we're doing. And thank you very much for the invitation. Um, thank you, Noel. Uh, thank you, Jane, for organizing this. And uh, it's, it's good to be here because uh, when we worked with Free Muse, we had good collaborations already with Michael uh, when he was uh, in, in Noel's position. Uh, we did a collaboration, I think about 10 years ago, about mobility of artists, because already then that, that was a big issue, not only in Europe, but also between Europe and the rest of the world. So 
great to be here. Um, Freemius last year uh, documented about 1,000 violations on artistic freedom worldwide. Now that may not sound a lot, three cases per day worldwide, if we compare to all kind of other human rights violations that we all face these days. Uh, but the truth is that statistics always lie. Uh, the, the problem is much, much larger. These are the ones that we could document and verify. It's probably tenfold, a hundredfold further than that. And, and some people tend to say that, that uh, art is a luxury. And other people would say it's, it's a necessity. It's something that we, we need to have in our lives. It's something that can reflect our thoughts and ideas. And that is, of course, also why sometimes it creates problems and conflicts. And before we start running into this, what we'll do is that we'll we have a few slides and we can take them away. We hope to have some kind of interaction with all of you. Uh, so you're welcome to... Uh, to uh, stop us or interact in between, and we have a, a mic down there. But maybe it's, it's a good idea to at least make one definition of what is artistic freedom. Again, there is not one single definition that everyone agrees to, but this is one of the definitions that we have co-developed with, with the UN, because when it comes to international legislations, uh, you need to have some kind of definition. And as you can see, it's not only a question of you as creators having the right to think freely, to create freely, to distribute freely without threats or violence, or whatever, but it's also a question of the audience, the people, the average citizen has a right of access to culture independent of age, gender, sexual orientation, or whatever. So when we talk about artistic freedom, this is the way it's basically being discussed internationally today with this framework. Then, of course, additionally, because there are issues of remuneration, of authors' rights, whatnot. We're not going to go into that today. We're basically going to focus on the freedom to express oneself, because once we get into remuneration and authors' rights, we can also stay here for the rest of the day. Um, I don't know if anyone uh, recognizes this painting. Is anyone here who seen that before? It's I'm jumping down to you. I need some exercise after lunch. It's um, a reimagining um, re um, of Guernica by Pablo Picasso. Right. And it's called the Furnica. Uh, it, it was produced by a young uh, Danish art student when she was still in Holland. And um, she took, of course, the idea of Guernica, but put in the context of today with the crisis in Sudan, uh, and at the same time, the media focus on very different topics, such as uh, one particular lady with the surname of, of Hilton, who ran around with 
sort of a rather expensive um, uh, bag. And that is what created uh, the problems for her. Here she is. Now, uh, the back was the big issue because Louis Vuitton did not like to be associated with hunger in Sudan or anything like that. So they sued her for using it. And we get really into the center of conflicts between art and brands. And you all know it's there. When can you use it? How can you use it? So being a student and being presented with what they call an ex-party decision means that you're not even in the courtroom. That legislation was made because of violations of trademarks, you know, all the false handbags and watches and whatnot. So, uh, the company in France can go to the court and, and say we have we need to have a decision. So they made this decision and told her to pay 5,000 euro per day. I know very few artists who even make 5,000 a month. So that was sort of a threat. Um, but she didn't uh, just stop there. And a lot of other artists started supporting her, saying, this is ridiculous. If you can't even, you know, make use of these things in an artistic way, what, what can you do next then? So these things came up all kinds of places. And uh, do any of you have one of these bags? <laughs> it's about the price of a relatively good painting, isn't it? Um, so, finally, several years later, going to the court in Haag, the decision was that, yes, she can do this, she's allowed to do it, it's part of her artistic freedom of expression, and uh, Louis Vuitton had to uh, to pay uh, the court costs. But in that process, uh, she was receiving very outright threats from Louis Vuitton. Things like, we have a lot of contacts with galleries, you're never going to be part of those galleries. But there was also an offer, you could join us. Leave this, you're a good artist, and we'll sort of support you. Um, the irony of this is that her T-shirt and this painting is now on the official page of the UN Human Rights Commissioner for Freedom of Expression. So there's some kind of uh, balance in things. Yeah. And did you also mention that she sold the T-shirts in order to be able to buy hospital equipments to send to Sudan? So it was not a kind of private enterprise, but really doing something good. Yes, um, there, there is, of course, a lot of uh, controversies around uh, visual arts. I mean, not just going to talk about visual arts, but of course, since you are here, uh, we just want to show you 
very quickly a few examples of, of recent controversies without really commenting. You can just have a look at them and see, okay, this is the kind of controversies that you can see around here in the past couple of years. Um, this one uh, from, from Cape Town, um, which in a way also addresses the issues of the right to history. Who has the right to tell which history and what kind of history should be forgotten? I think it's um, something we may come into when we talk about public space and uh, colonization. I mean, all the sculptures around where we live in Copenhagen, most of these sculptures um, were made of people who made their money on slave trade. But it's a history that people don't discuss. It's just, just around there. And there hasn't been demonstrations like in Cape Town, but they also have very different violent political history. Um, this is another one. This is obviously dealing with, with politics, uh, nationalism. The, the recent uh, developments in Turkey is, as you all know, very ugly, uh, very repressive regime, and you definitely cannot address issues that deals with genocide on Armenians or the uh, persecution of, of Kurdish artists. Uh, let me not just know, can you all hear well? Good. Um, this one, close to you. Um, this little part down there could be interpreted as Ku Klux Klan, so highly politicized and highly controversial. And then you have this one, where these were vandalized, not when the exhibition came up, but because uh, the local church invited a representative of the Muslim community. Then that stirred up. Uh, a lot of issues here. So uh, that was just a, a few examples. Um, the organization we worked with, Free Muse, has two web pages. One is uh, Arts Freedom, which deals with all art forms. The other one is Free Muse, basically dealing with music. Um, but uh, I thought it might be time to reflect a little bit. Marie, you, you started with this uh, in 97, organized the first World Conference in 98. Um, what kind of major changes have you seen in this field that we're talking about since you started? Yeah, and then again, this is my personal uh, experiences. You don't have to agree or disagree, but I've observed some changes uh, throughout these 20 years. First of all, Freemius started with documentation. At the time, there was nothing to find on internet, and of course, at libraries, uh, there were books about censorship during uh, the Nazi era and in, um, during Stalin in the Soviet Union, but nothing of so-called contemporary censorship. So uh, we started out with almost nothing, but slowly built up and documented all cases. In the beginning, it was only music, as Ola said, but also mainly reports we picked up from African newspapers or from Asia, from Latin America, from all over the world. But mainly, we were uh, documenting cases 
uh, of musicians from so-called developing countries. Much later, Europe became part of the documentation. It was a um, political time when um, uh, it was still the very old Europe there. Um, today, there is a lot of media attention. Um, a lot of papers actually um, report on music censorship and on any kind of censorship. Uh, there was nothing in the beginning. In 2011, um, we had received many requests from visual artists, from theater people, from dancers, asking, why doesn't Freemius look after us? Why don't you document cases? Because there are a lot of people out there who are censored or even imprisoned for their art. So in 2012, we organized the first World Conference on Artistic Freedom in Oslo at the Opera House. And that totally changed also the focus in free music. We started to work more on policy papers together with you and etc. Um, but when I look at the changes um, uh, from a personal level again, the political landscape has changed a lot since we started. You um, have the social media revolution, which means that artists today um, receive anonymous threats through social media. I don't know if any of you has been attacked on social media, on, on, on chat. Um, get some, some hands up if anyone yeah, has hands? received threats. You don't have to tell your name. Have you cut personal threats on social media for your art? One person. One person. Yeah. Uh, we'll come back to that. Um, just to add to that, Marie, uh, the Swedish uh, Cultural Research Institute um, did a research with um, visual artists and writers in Sweden. Every third artist has re received some kind of threat. That's in Sweden. <laughs> uh, in Sweden, in fact, a lot of, especially women artists, have received threats. If they are so-called feminists, it seems that a lot of, mostly male, have a lot of uh, anger against these women. So they write very stupid things and they send them uh, idiotic emails and threaten them. We know where you live, you know, we can come and rape you or something like that. Can I really, just ask really you, harsh. Uh, no, how did that affect you getting threats? Uh, when the uh, it was, they were from Russia and they started with anonymous telephone calls early in the morning um, denounced on um, several websites as being a Russophobe and compared to a pedophile um, and being honest, it became it was first of all very scary, and then I decided to take the power back from it and started actually making T-shirts out of it. And do you think people in general, I mean artists in general, are afraid to go up out in the open and talk about this? I don't. I, to be honest, I don't think so. I think that the, the 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 fright of it is that sometimes the people making the threats are the people in power, so therefore. There is a sense of that the censorship is that your career will end if you put your head above the parapet. But I do think there's a maturity in the visual arts of people realizing actually, you know what, it's a bigger world out there. And um, as Mark Clare says, you know, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Uh, 
Yeah, um, but also um, uh, when we started, we had kind of humanistic approach. You know, we wanted to support people who were persecuted, persecuted, were imprisoned. Wanted, as our chairperson Martin Clunan said, nice people against nasty things. Uh, but um, post, I would say, in a sense, post the Danish cartoons and the Pussy Riot case, there has been a not a shift, but a sh small change that a lot of human rights defenders um, um, have been more become more politicized, and um, also that a lot of right wing groups have formed their own human rights centers and human rights conferences. Um, so um, there is a big change. And the rise of um, right-wing parties all over Europe has um, also led to that um, they have formed, for example, in Denmark, there is one human rights organization or freedom of speech, which is PEN, you know, international PEN. But then you have two new ones. One is very much linked to the right-wing party in Denmark. So, they, you know, sometimes as a freedom of speech advocate, you maybe have to fight both sides, <laughs> both the new right-wing people and also the, the real um, censorship cases and um, whatever. And, and which way do you think the, the right-wing organizations differ in their attitude or their documentation than the, let's say, the traditional ones like Pen and Free Muse and Article 19 and others. How is their focus? Well, um, in a sense, you can say when uh, the Pussy Riot case came up, uh, there were uh, a lot of organizations. It was good because the public became aware of censorship and it was discussed widely. Uh, they got a lot of support from human rights organizations uh, all over the world. Uh, but then I have a sense, and this is my personal feeling, that um, uh, the girls were invited also to, um, in a sense, prove that the government of um, Putin and his politics were really bad, and it was a very good opportunity for criticism of that. Um, then you have, of course, lobby groups. Um, there could be religious lobby groups, uh, animal rights organizations, or minority groups who start to uh, speak up and protest. There has been incidents where art exhibition has been attacked, books have been withdrawn, and theater plays, theater houses have to um, close down because they were not allowed or no, they were attacked, so they couldn't go on uh, performing or playing. That has happened in England, it's happened in Sweden and many other places. And it's probably one of, one of the major changes in the past couple of years is that um, when, when we started out, a lot of documentation was dealing with non-European countries. And increasingly, we, we see all these uh, attacks on, on the arts in Europe as well. Uh, especially in Poland and Hungary, and... Yes. Charlie. What about Charlie? Yes. 
Exactly, and and part of that is, of course, that from uh, attacking the artists themselves or the cartoonists in this case, uh, there are also attacks on audiences at concert halls. We all know the tragic uh, thing in England and uh, and also in, in the Bataclan Club, and and that obviously basically come from from militant, uh, what we'd call extremist or fundamentalist. It's it's a very difficult debate. What's a fundamentalist? What's an extremist? You know what I mean. I, I would say ISIS and and Daesh. These people are extreme in their interpretation or whatever they think they are interpreting. But it's obvious that they also benefit. Uh, with their own people from doing these very illustrious um, attacks on the arts. And the question is, of course, how does that affect the art scene as such? When you address issues that you may potentially believe could be controversial, if you're a gallery, if you're a museum, if you have a certain pressure group in your neighborhood, how do you deal with that? Yeah, and of course, these protests from minority groups or animal rights groups, it's, it's very good because we live in democracy, so everybody has the right to, to speak up. But it really creates a lot of problems for the cultural sector and for cultural organizers. Uh, and, but also, this enormous attention on the Pussy Riot case and the political agenda around it, um, has you know made me ask yes this is really a huge uh, story like the Salman Rushdie case it made people aware of it and people took action on the other hand I started to think of oh, yes but what about all these other artists who are not highlighted by the media who is going to look after them I mean there are more um, artists in more than 70 countries who are censored or who of course, one should also remember that not all artists are censored, not at all. It's a minority. And there are those who are really provocative, who want to provoke, and they know that this might lead to imprisonment or it might lead to an arrest. But then you have, I will say, the majority who are absolutely innocent in that they have no intention to provoke, but their art might be stopped anyway. It seems there is a difficult issue here. I think anyone that works on these issues sometimes also have a conflict with themselves. You know, do I really want to defend this or that? Um, when you monitor violations, when you do campaigns for artists, because we and other organizations do these campaigns to support artists who are getting imprisoned, uh, you may not like their art. You have to sort of decide with yourself that you're working for a principle. But even if you're working for the principle, maybe sometime that principle conflicts with your own ethics, your own ideology. And, and obviously, you've been working so many years on this, so you have had this thought several times in your career. Yes. <laughs> um, defending free speech is not that easy, you know. Where to draw the line, uh, at what cost, and um, 
at the expense of whose pain? And I've just took a very, very brief quote from Ursula Owen, who wrote a fantastic little booklet called Hate Speech. She used to be the editor the, of uh, Index, Index on Censorship. Censorship in London, and she was the director for 13 years there. And she wrote, uh, you know, when you talk about hate speech, there are again many definitions of it. And um, I picked one which I liked personally. Hate speech refers to expression which is abusive, insulting, intimidating, harassing, and which incites to violence, hatred, or discrimination. And this is usually where some of us working in the human rights field of freedom of expression some people think that the Mohammed cartoons, well, it was not really perceived as art. They are covered by the media people, by the media organizations, and, and Freemius did not involve in that at all. Uh, but um, where it's difficult to draw the line. Can you, personally, I believe in coexistence, and I don't really understand where all the anger comes from. <laughs> Um, amongst those people who are filled with hatred against uh, artistic expressions. Um, I, I believe that the, not a duty, but maybe um, at least journalists, of which I am one, and there are also artists, that you, are, um, you can question those in power, not those without power. Uh, that's my belief, as the latter. Uh, I would always say to question those in power is good, but to uh, question those without power can often lead to hate speech. So. And as you said, the definition of hate speech is really very vague and different from countries to countries. Obviously, there is one definition in Ireland, and, and there is another thing in Ireland, which is the blasphemy. And Michael, um, you've thought a lot about blasphemy over the years and whether there should be limits. Uh, there is a blasphemy legislation in, uh, in Ireland. Is that, is that a good thing? I don't think so. Um, when it was brought in, um, the government, I think, were lazy. They said that there was something in the constitution which required them to have a blasphemy law and that not to have it would mean having a referendum not to have it, and they didn't want to have a referendum at that time. It hasn't made a huge impact here, thankfully, and it was surprising that the churches, including the uh, Muslims, didn't want it brought in. They said that anything that they would be concerned about would be covered by... Um, the hate speech type of legislation that was already in place. They didn't see the need for a blasphemy law. And the danger that um, I saw for it at the time was a good few years ago, there was a cartoonist in Austria, who um, Ludwig Lahar, I no, um, I can't remember his name. Uh, he was tried for blasphemy in Greece because some elderly lady saw a book that had been published there by, with his drawings. She took exception. He was sentenced in, in his absence because he chose not to go to Greece for the court case uh, to, I think, four years in prison, and they issued a European arrest warrant for him. The Austrians didn't export him to Greece to do the four years because, funnily enough, he had already been tried for it in Austria and found innocent. 
but it meant that during that time he couldn't leave Austria because if he had gone to any other European country, they would have packed him off. Eventually the case was overturned, um, but having it here means that you could, if, if somebody somewhere, and he hadn't even known the book was published in Greece, it was a decision sold at a book fair somewhere. Uh, if your work upsets somebody in another country, in Romania or wherever, um, you can be tried without being there, found guilty for blasphemy, and because we now have a blasphemy law, it's, a, it's an offence that exists here, you will be shipped off to Romania. So, who's going to Romania here? We'll, we'll get the name of that. It's, it's a well-known case. I'm, the, the... Michael Burke. Michael Burke. Okay, sorry. Um, what do you think? Uh, should, should Ireland continue to have a blasphemy legislation? Those who are against, please do like this. Against the blasphemy legislation? And, and who, who would like to see a continuation of the blasphemy uh, legislation? We need to have some opponents here. <laughs> we can't agree all here. It's terrible. <laughs> right. Um, what's interesting... So, we now have a consensus that all of you agree that the blasphemy legislation in Ireland should be ripped off. Um, I'm not going to note that. But I want to put it into perspective because it's also a question of how these legislations are being used or abused uh, by others in the rest of the world. Because one thing is that you have an existing court system in Ireland which is independent, but that's not the case uh, in, in all other countries. And I don't know if you remember uh, this article, um, but... Um, one of the really big conflicts within the Human Rights Council has related to blasphemy or criticism of religion. And for several years, this dominated several discussions on freedom of expression in the Human Rights Council and way back when it was the Human Rights Committee. Um, because basically, the, uh, what is called the OIC, the Organization of Islamic Countries, were driving the agenda that criticism of religion is equal to racism and hate speech. And that's where, when it comes to international legislation, it's important what's being said, what kind of uh, court systems you have, and whether these court systems are more independent than very close to the state. The, the system is, of course, in Europe, basically, if you are censored, if your work is censored, uh, you can go to the court. You can go to the national court. The national court can then decide to overrule. And if you are not, uh, do not agree with this, you can go to the European court. But going to the European court is a very, very long process. Um, and the European court is also dealing with Russia and Turkey. And there are very few cases where artists have gone all the way from the national court to 
the European Court. One of the artists is a musician in Turkey, Ferhat Tunç. He's got around 20 court cases, as far as I remember. I can't really keep track anymore. And it's also always something about uh, terror or this or that. He's a Kurt, so he addresses Kurdish issues. And in one of the uh, decisions of the court in 2003 in Turkey, uh, he was convicted for propaganda for terror, which basically means that he says the Kurds have the right to their language and their music and whatnot. Ten years later, there was a decision in the European Court that Turkey had to compensate him. But then, what about the next 20 cases? But at least we have the system. It doesn't mean that Turkey or Russia then agrees to the verdict. They may pay very small compensation, and in the meantime, they can keep the artists going in and out of courtrooms for whatever's happening. And what's worrying is if this tendency is spreading to countries like Hungary or Poland. What's happening basically in, in these countries is that the regime uh, gets rid of any artists that are not pro-regime in the cultural institutions, in the national theatres, in educational systems, and they cut away the funding. Um, you have been uh, editing quite a number of articles uh, from all over the world, and Poland was one of these countries where you had an article about censorship and funding, wasn't it? Not only funding, okay. I mean, it's all over. Sometimes, for example, in Turkey, the Theatre Institute of Ankara University was... Um, they were trying to close it, so they fired um, more than two-thirds of the staff who had built up the uh, Theatre Institute. And uh, then you have the few left who tried to keep it alive, but... Um, it's not easy because you destroy a whole history and the whole theatre institution and the knowledge and research on, on theatre. And it was also the basis of many of the actors in, in Turkey. Censorship in general, of course, has a huge impact on the cultural industries, on, on the artists, on the audiences. But sometimes maybe it can also work the different way. I don't know if you read the, the morning paper today about uh, J.P. Uh, Dunleavy and the, the ginger man. Um, he wrote that many years ago it was banned in Ireland, but he sold five, 45 million copies. So maybe uh, actually for the book and for the publishers it was a very good thing to be banned. There's nothing like black and white situation. And, and of course we've also in our work experienced that Artists that have been banned have somehow been put up on a stage where they might not necessarily have the capacity to deal with all these issues. There is, as some of you may know, a system in Europe of so-called safe haven uh, cities. It's cities that host an artist for two years. They provide uh, an apartment, a stipend, and connect to the local art scene, whether it's mu music or visual arts and whatnot. And some of the artists who come from maybe not a traditional professional artist background, you know, for instance, a street rapper in Morocco who is basically just got in class with police, 
suddenly has to deal with all the expectations coming to a city that's hosting the artists they want, the artists on the platform, and to make talks and analyze. And the guy, it's frequently a guy, has maybe basically just made a couple of lyrics criticizing police violence. So there are several issues from that side of the table where we are also sitting, where you have to deal with, with, with personal issues and sometimes tell organizers that, well, we know you would like to put this artist on a big stage, but that artist is not fit for a big stage. He or she is not ready for that. Um, and that's where the media syndrome sometimes come in. Marie was mentioning the Pussy Riot. It was an obvious case for the media, very interesting, but they never wrote about an artist who was rotting in a prison in, in, in Cameroon for, for three years. That's, uh, that's, of course, the way media uh, is working. But coming back to why, why there is censorship, these are sort of the basic... Uh, issues behind the attacks and threats on art. And um, what's frequently not spoken about is the gender perspective, that the fact that if you are uh, a woman doing your art in many countries, including here, you'll have a particular pressure on you. Uh, and they will abuse you in a different way than they abuse the men. Some of you may remember when, when the, the American uh, Dixie Chicks, the, the country band, was performing in London and they made a criticism, not really on the war on Iraq. They simply said, we're from Texas, we're not proud of being from Texas. That's where Mr. Bush came from. And the kind of insults they received, apart from uh, you are a slut, you are this, you are that, uh, it was very much targeted towards their gender, and it kept them silent for a couple of years. Um, any comments to, to these issues? What, what do you feel are the most pressuring in regards to threats on artistic freedom? Because we haven't talked about funding, uh, arm's length principles. Um, anyone who wants to make a comment at this stage? Yes. In Northern Ireland, we would have an awful lot of political and religious intervention that would sort of take control and censorship from local councillors who dictate what can be shown in art centres, etc. So from our end, I think political and religious is very up, much up there. Can I ask you a name? Sorry, Deidre Rob. Have you experienced any of this? Not personally, but I also work in the Arts Council, so I know artists who have been impacted by it. And do you feel that the Arts Council are considering when they do funding, um, maybe this is a little bit too controversial, they may not talk about it openly, but... No, we embrace it. Good. <laughs> um, my name is Lisa and I'm an artist. And you were asking, you know, um, about what do I see as the biggest threat? I think it's the, um, the subtle thing of, you know, art spaces are expected to be child-friendly family spaces in Ireland now. And I, the amount of artists that I know have had work subtly refused, you know what I mean? It's just, you know, whether it's around repeal the age, whether it's around gay issues, whether it's around a lot of things that people are still not very comfortable with. Um, I know I've had videos turned off. Um, I've had lots of things happen and I wouldn't bother saying it. It just kind of makes me self-censor and think, 
you know, something, I'll just keep that work to myself. Um, so, but I do know that that's happening a lot. And I suppose for me, I've worked a lot with writers and I would have been very involved in things like Writers Week. And um, I've shown work <laughs> and I remember doing a, a painting about a, 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 a transsexual and I remember somebody being really, really offended. And I was introducing writing at the same event. And uh, I was saying, why do we expect writers to challenge us and really go to our core in terms of the depths of humanity? And yet, we, I think we expect art to be bland a lot, especially outside of the cities. Um, so I just kind of feel a little bit that this undercurrent of, of the subtle um, standing on our heads and making us be bland is probably the most dangerous thing that we're, we're seeing. And unless you actually make work that is challenging the status quo, you're never going to feel it or you're never going to notice because your work will be accepted. But I see a lot of artists who are just either giving up or just, you know, not making the work that they really want to make. Um. It's not so much about my practice, but uh, I have, a, I don't do a lot of social media, uh, but I have a Twitter account, and at the heading of that it says tweets about light, lenses and liberty. Now, I have been advised by someone who's <laughs> um, trying to help me actually make an income out of my art to not be tweeting quite so much about the liberty aspects. So that amounts to a basically a self-censorship. Either I create a new identity that's just about the light and the lenses, or I tell it how I think it is. And your name? Walter. Do, do you think there is a need to uh, talk more about this in Ireland? Or, I mean, is this common knowledge? Yeah, I, I'm actually quite angry about it. Because why do I have to... Sorry, do you mind just moving out a little yeah. bit? Why? <laughs> Um, yeah, no, it tickles. Got a beard. Right. <laughs> uh, um, Which part of the beard? <laughs> just, uh, all right. Um, so, my, my, my point that that'll do. Will I, will I hold it? How about that? Yeah. Uh, just to speak I, down I, in I, it. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind it's of. Never got to be a rock star. Because then you need to have it up here. Light and <laughs> lenses. All right. Uh, it, it, it annoys me um, because I believe we are all political animals. And there's no reason why we should cut that off. It doesn't mean that our work has to be political, but it shouldn't just because we want to work and we want to be, you know, it's 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 the galleries, you know, it's the, the local councillors, it's, it's things like that. If people are going to see my work uh, or hear about me and wonder, will I give this guy a commission? Um, let's find out a bit more about him. Put me into Google, find something I said on Twitter, and think, oh, I don't agree with that. That's the end of that commission. I think there's a very real problem there. I don't know how to answer it. Thank you. Well, I think one of the one of the main problems in Ireland really is the fact that so much funding comes from local authorities. So, um, like I've been told, oh, you, that that proposal would never pass, you know, because it was political. So that that they're trying to well, that does really affect. A lot of artists, I feel. What's the problem that it's local funded? Um, county councillors are quite conservative. So in a lot of, you know, for um, a lot of grants in Ireland are done per county. So in, in your region, it's usually the local councillors who might have no interest in art. They would have a big say in who's selected. Um, and their views would be quite conservative. Well, particularly if you're criticising 
uh, public policy and things on like civil liberties and stuff like they don't like to be or there was um, artists and exhibitions that I was involved in and they were criticised because they took, had photography of homeless people so this, this wasn't supposed to be they had to remove the work from the show and that was in a local county council office and your name? Joyce Duffy. Um, the, we, we talked earlier about the, the discussion and the controversies in public space. Have any of you experienced controversies of your artwork being in public space and people either damaging it or criticizing it or discussing it? I mean, after all, we also want art to discuss issues. No one, yeah. <laughs> Coming over here. Yes, my name is Mary Duffy, and I've lots of experience of this. Um, I was a performance artist and worked with photography. I've no arms, and sorry, you, I don't have a beard, but um... <laughs> it's because the, it doesn't amplify so well. Okay, all right. So, um, yeah, um, I did most of my work abroad for that reason. I no longer work in performance art or photography, and um, yeah, I have the. Yeah, I was banned in Japan and uh, there was a protest in Carlisle and, yeah, anyway, it was good for funding, that's all. But, but have you also been personally abused by performing in the public? Yes, the naked body is very um, threatening, shall we say, but anyway, yeah, so... Um, do, do you ever get provoked by anything in the public, like... A, statue or a sculpture uh, because after all we all reflect on things we see and I mean I get more offended by advertising in the public space than I do by the art. Sorry, was that a question? Sorry, I don't know what the question is. The question is whether you personally ever feel that you are getting offended by public art. Mm, well, challenged I'd call it, yeah. Anyway. Thank, thank you. Um, I don't think we have a lot more time, like five minutes, something like that. Um, just put up this one. The, uh, the effects. That one of the really, really difficult things for whether you're an organization or you're a researcher, to really understand what those effects are. We've, we've just listed a few things here that we feel are important to, to address. Um, frequently when you talk with politicians about censorship, um, they would not necessarily be very interested or would no one case, like Maria was mentioning, the push riot or something. It's different when you talk, as you know, with politicians about money. And it's, to my view, one of the things that should be addressed more when we look at a global scale, that countries that have a harsh censorship, uh, regulation, persecution of police or military, whatever, are basically also those countries where the cultural industries do not really
get to the level where it could be. After all, if we look at Europe and the US, the culture economy is huge. It's a very strong, important sector today. And we already have an imbalance between so-called North and the South. And, and in order to get the cultural industries in the South to develop, there is a need for more respect for artistic freedom in general. Um, and of course also mobility, that is artists are able to move around, travel around. And of course we are in a situation where one of these things, as we say, sterilized debates on human, social, and political issues. Uh, increasingly, in, in, in many countries, you see that people are afraid to address certain issues uh, because they feel maybe they will be attacked or that they should take special care. And that's a very, to me, a very fine balance between hate speech and addressing issues the way they are and discussing it in the open. So I think all of us, including the audience, has some kind of um, obligation to defend the right to express ourselves freely. Marie, would you like to add more here? Okay. Um, shall we? We could talk for hours. Um, but shall we stop here and then thank you very much for attending and, and good luck with the rest of the day. Um, I want to thank both Marie and Ole because um, I'm quite lucky. I've had the maddest Skype calls you could ever imagine for about an hour and a half um, with both of them covering so many more topics than you can uh, fit into the short time that we had. Um, where VAI's interest has come from this is Michael and I were involved with quite a few organizations in the early part of my career with VAI that we're dealing with censorship, but it seems to have fallen off the radar of people's agendas. And we are hit on a regular basis by the censorship of art in many ways in Ireland. Um, I suppose the Ursula Burke in Banbridge is probably the most recent um, that we had to deal with, uh, where she had the most, um, how can you put, uh, well, there was a great lack of detail in the drawing and it could have been, you know, extremely, graphic of two men um, naked in a field with a voyeur looking from behind a hedge and Bambridge City Council didn't allow it to go into the exhibition because it would be offensive to the local population. Um, but there's more censorship than that. There's censorship that are funding constraints. There's censorship that's brought on by the good taste of the middle classes. There's, there's the censorship of the media and the media, how they censor what we see, what we read and what we think. So we're constantly under attack. We're constantly bombarded in our information age. It is incessant. And the danger is that we will become inured to it. We'll become so used to it that we won't see it as censorship. It's a very insidious world that we live in at the moment. It's nuanced and it's constant. So it is something VAI is keeping an eye on. 
Um, as I say, we do act, we do, and being honest, we don't act on everything. It does take us a while for us to consider whether or not it's actually censorship, because I think the definition of censorship is uh, whether or not it's somebody that's actually just offended <laughs> or whether or not it is actually censorship. So sometimes we might look a little bit slow. Um, but definitely I think you'll hear more and more as we try and highlight it um, as it's happening um, and trying to make people more aware that they need to be on the lookout um, in a society that really is starting to prefer us as tasteful, vanilla, middle-class, perfect, gleaming Stepford wives. <laughs> and on that note, I'd like to thank you both again and thank you all for your attention.